At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Welcome everyone to this Drug Science Podcast. Tonight we're crossing the pond to Canada and I'm delighted to have with me Spencer Hawkswell. Spencer is the CEO of a company called Theracil and his ambition is to initially make psilocybin available for people who need it in Canada on a, a name patient basis, I believe, you know, for palliative and, and compassionate care. But he has a, a much bigger ambition, which he's going to share with us. So welcome, Spencer. Thank you very much for having me here, David. Well, I'm inspired by hearing you talk on a number of occasions, not least just a, last week to the drug science team. And I think our listeners are going to be fascinated by what you're trying to do. So, so why don't you introduce them to this concept of Theracil? I'd love to. So I think it makes sense to start at, at where Theracil came from. And I'll, I'll explain that by just explaining how Canada became one of the first countries in the world to legalize cannabis, because it's very much, you know, the foundation of, of what we came from. And that is Canadian advocates. I think at the time, back in the early 2000s, these were many AIDS advocates who saw a special clause within our Canadian laws that essentially allows for our elected officials our Minister of Health grant exemptions to the drug laws. And back then it was allowing AIDS patients to access cannabis. And what that did is it set a real precedent in Canada. And, and I think it's a, a precedent vital to all democracy. And that is, you know, our elected officials, the people who we elect uh, to be in charge of matters of public health, have the power and the authority to change those laws when they're unjust and when they, when they negatively affect people who need access to their medicine. And so back in the 2000s, we had a lovely minister named Alan Rock who allowed the first AIDS patients to get access to cannabis. And in the year 2017, after we'd seen much of the amazing research coming out of Hopkins, NYU, and UCLA on psilocybin um, and its efficacy in treating palliative patients, it was a bit of a no-brainer uh, for myself and, and Bruce Tobin, a doctorate of, of Victoria, to essentially assert those, those same rights uh, to to the health officials for a number of patients who are looking to use psilocybin in palliative care. Uh, so that really is what Theracil is, is we are a patient-centered nonprofit. And our goal is to support palliative Canadians and we'll, we'll expand, uh, we're currently expanding to reach, to reach out to more than just palliative Canadians, but also healthcare practitioners who would like to use psilocybin in their treatment. And in, I guess we would have, gotten together more formally in 2019, January of 2019, and after about 100 days of advocating for four Canadian patients who were palliative at the end of life, uh, we got the first four exemptions from our Minister of Health, elected official using the same model, and that is a very patient-centered model. We got those people access to psilocybin this time in what would have been about 50 years. Uh, so 
that's our goal is to continue to assert that any Canadian in medical need of psilocybin has a right to it. So patients know of you now and they come to you and they order doctors or how, how does it actually work in practice? So we have a bit of both. At first, there were a couple of patients who were reaching out to us who had read you know, the Hopkins study and upon looking in Google where they can find mushrooms for treatment, we were supporting them. So we had a couple patients a month reaching out saying, hey, I'd like to try this. And we would connect them with a number of doctors who were on our team. Now that's changed. Now we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages from patients and healthcare practitioners each, each month. You know, these are people who, have, who are reading, you know, research. They're reading the books and they're seeing, you know, these psychedelic companies going public and, and learning more about the possibilities of psychedelics uh, used as, as medicine. And, and they want in. Patients want treatment and healthcare practitioners want training and it's caused us to create, you know, a mission that focuses on four core pillars, with the first being that compassionate access I was talking about, but the other two pillars being both public education uh, for people who may want to use psilocybin, so talking about the merits and limitations of psilocybin, and then professional training too, because if we're supporting patients with access, I think it makes sense that we also support healthcare practitioners with training. And something that happened about one year ago almost to the date, it would have been December 1st of 2020, we had uh, the first 19 healthcare practitioners. So these were doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, also received that same exemption so they could use psilocybin for experiential training to better treat their patients. So another very interesting precedent that actually... It is fascinating. So, so now it's part of the education process. You get registered exactly. somehow and you get an exemption from the government if you want to experience the effect. Uh, what, and you self-administer, do you, or do you have to do it un under your supervision? So that's a really interesting, and we can get into a bit of talking about where the exemptions are right now and, and maybe some of the, the problems with them, because the exemption now is actually for an individual practitioner or patient to legally possess up to five grams of psilocybin which if you know about you know the structure of psilocybin and its potency is probably an error on the side of health canada no they were just getting ready for a gearing up weren't they <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> they're future proofing it that's very sensible yeah. or do you think they got confused between the dried mushrooms and the active ingredients exactly i mean by my calculations that's probably about a kilogram of mushrooms you know containing that much but it, it doesn't matter there are some patients actually who are you know using up to 30 grams of mushrooms at once, if you can believe that or not, for their trigeminal, bilateral trigeminal neuralgia. So there's just so many different uses. But uh, to answer your question, this is personal. So an individual patient or, or healthcare practitioner can possess their own mushrooms, but it does not allow a pathway to supply. So it's, it's only an exemption for possession, not for supply. So they do still have to find it their own way, either on the black market or picking it across themselves. That's okay, fascinating. So, okay, so let's just assume that I'm a patient. I discovered I'm, you know, I've got terminal cancer and I heard this rumor that psilocybin might be helpful. And I go on the website and I find Theracil. What do I do then? And what do you do then? So what we would ask you to do is first fill out our web form. And that web form, there's a number of different questions that it would ask, you know, confirming that you do have a diagnosis, uh, that you want to try psilocybin, uh, that you're going to try it. You know, this is your choice. So there's informed consent. 
And then after that, we supply you with some forms that you can either take to your doctor, and that would be our inclusion criteria. So uh, we work closely with Hopkins and NYU to figure out what their inclusion criteria for the research was, and then we've adapted it. You know, obviously the inclusion criteria for research, you've got to control far too many variables for it to be applicable, you know, clinically in the real world. So we lightened it up a bit, but nonetheless, we still want to let people know that, you know, there are possible um, dangers if you have, you know, severe central nervous system involvement in your cancer, or if your, your liver is in rough shape. So, you know, this is all about safety, making sure people know the risks of psilocybin. And then the next step is to get that. So that's the first step. Do many people yeah. drop into that? Is there a much attrition at that point? I mean, the people who really want it actually go through that first step. And it's actually the next step that's the hardest because we ask them to get that in front of a doctor, right? So that they can get supported by a doctor. That's again, the model for medical cannabis in this country is you've got to have a doctor as a gatekeeper. So that doctor is confirming, you know, that this is a reasonable medical decision. And for many patients who are palliative, who have tried everything else, you know, there, there are many doctors who are willing to support them, but there are also a lot of doctors who are worried about their license and not sure whether or not they should be supporting patients with access to psilocybin. So that's where things get slow and where we turn into a bottleneck. But to quickly summarize, you know, how you go from reaching out to the website to getting your exemption, if you can have a doctor support your, your letter or your inclusion criteria form, and then you can send it back to us, we essentially will just write up a one-page Section 56 application, we'll have that sent out to the Minister of Health and we'll have it supported by a number of MPs as well. And it usually takes about a couple of weeks for, to hear a response from that. I see. So if the patient can persuade the doctor, you then do everything else. The template is filled out. The diagnosis is there. It's authorized by the doctor. Exactly. And is that a state Minister of Health or is that a, the National Minister of Health? National, yeah. So we've got provinces which are like states, and then it's the national minister, the federal minister of health, who used to be Patty Haidu, but now is, uh, his name is Jean-Yves Duclos with another minister, Caroline Bennett. So they're kind of working together as the two ministers of health. And so they, they overrule, the province can't block it then once, once that person has said it's okay. Because it's interesting because I've been helping Australia. Australia's trying to go down the same route. And we've already got interesting problems where the country, you know, has said, yeah, you can use it. And then the states have blocked it. But you don't have that problem. You, your Minister of Health rules everything. Exactly. And, and especially when it comes, like those, those drug laws are, are national, right? The Canadian Drugs and Controlled Substances Act, that's national. So where the provinces would come in is, is if there were regulations made, much like cannabis, um, the federal government could say, you know, it's a legal right for Canadians to have access. And here are some parameters people need access, but it then would be up to the provinces because in Canada, the provinces run each of their healthcare for them to, to make the finer, the finer rules and regulations, which is why in BC, you know, we've got very lax cannabis laws and in somewhere like Quebec, uh, the French part of Canada, it's, it's a little more difficult for people to access cannabis. Yes. So let's just go back. So sorry, let me get my head around that again. So you go to the Minister of Health with a template and a few MPs perhaps giving support, the doctor gives support, and within a couple of weeks, the person gets a letter saying that they're allowed to use psilocybin. Exactly, and that's many times going through Health Canada as well. So, you know, we, we speak to and we try to communicate directly with the Minister of Health because, you know, the bureaucrats at Health Canada, they're lovely people, they really are. 
but the only person with real power, right, with the real authority to fast track exemptions uh, to grant them is the Minister of Health. So we're careful to keep a, a healthy balance between the, the bureaucrats at Health Canada, who are the ones that end up filing all the paperwork and sending back the exemption, and the Minister of Health. And I'll give you a quick, a quick explanation of that, David, is we had a patient a couple of months ago who was about to die, and they had tried absolutely everything. They were experiencing nine, 10 out of 10 most days pain. And they were on a fentanyl drip, I think clonazepam as well. And their doctor came to us saying, listen, we've tried absolutely everything. We've been just crying. It's been awful, awful pain for the last about six weeks. I think this person needs psilocybin. I really think they do. And so we sent a section 56 directly to the minister and had uh, the help of one of the local MPs here on Vancouver Island uh, support that exemption. And what was normally taking, you know, three weeks to a month, these exemptions, we got it back in about 24 hours for this person, treated them the next day. And the day after that, uh, their pain went down to about a three of a 10. They were up and walking, laughing with family members, and essentially were able to have a very dignified death. So that's the power of the politicians, you know, versus sometimes going the more bureaucratic route. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it does rely on you having uh, health ministers that are open-minded and progressive, and also the civil service. I mean, one of the problems we have found in the UK with medical cannabis, it's been legal for three years, but but no one's prescribing it because the bureaucracy is basically unassailable. So there's got to be, you know, you've actually managed to persuade both politicians and bureaucrats that this is a good thing, which was not, can't have been an easy thing to do, given that, there, I mean, I, I suppose you're right, there were two studies in the States, but you had to do presumably quite a lot of education of, of those people, did you? I mean, You've been in there in the parliament telling people what's about it. Absolutely. But David, I mean, that would have been totally impossible if it wasn't for much of the work that people like Robin Card-Harris and Roland Griffiths and Matthew Johnson and yourself, Anthony, you know, Tony Bossis and Bill Richards. I mean, I mean, it was it was us really leaning on these researchers who made this so real, right? They put the real hard science in front of these doctors and therapists so that all we had to say was, you know, here are people who have access to treatment options that aren't working right, for their palliative care and medical death, right? medical assistance in dying. Is it not a, a reasonable medical decision to try a mushroom that you know, in these studies was almost 80% effective? And to that, I still to this day rarely run into healthcare professionals who, who disagree with that, with that logic. Yeah. I think you just live in a much more rational country than the United Kingdom, frankly. You know, we... We find with cannabis that healthcare professionals are extraordinarily adept at finding reasons for not doing anything. And this is actually what, you know, one of the reasons this conversation with you is fascinating because I would love for us in the UK to be in a similar position as you with psilocybin. But, you know, I'm almost certain we're going to find a vast body of, of doctors who are, again, will come up with any explanation of why they shouldn't. It'll cause psychosis. It's addictive, all that kind of crap. And, you you know, which, as you pointed out there, is, is of no relevance whatsoever as someone who's dying. But they will still use this kind of knee-jerk reaction because they don't want to believe. So, but you've got them to believe. So I'm impressed. I understand what you mean. It's like, you know, it's like Galileo trying to get, what was it, the priests and folks looking through his telescope, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got, a, you got this veil of ignorance, but 
it's all about the framing, right? And and really, I think what the what helped us in Canada so so much was at a political or at a you know, policy level, we are far we are very different from the UK. We have this medical cannabis, which the, the doctors were not agreeing with us, right? When we were legalizing cannabis, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're fighting the doctors tooth and nail. And the same in many places with, you know, abortion and medical assistance and dying. There's there's controversy there. So I don't know why. It may be because we framed it as, you know, just for palliative patients who are treatment resistant, who have the right to die. We run into very, very little resistance from the medical community. So it's interesting. I, I don't really know why, but it's totally different than it was last time. Yeah, well, that's impressive. And if you can kind of work out how we can use the same approach try to explain it to our doctors but I'm sure education is quite crucial I mean tell us a bit more about your education courses and your professional training how do you run those yeah so you know I mean this was a great challenge of mine when I was getting the organization together was I'm not a doctor I'm not a clinician Uh, so having clinicians speaking to each other about this was was incredibly important sharing patient stories you know talking about how how they've either used it and and sharing research. So starting off really small, really grassroots helped us. I I wish that we could have been able to, you know, go out there and recruit a bunch of physicians all across the country, but we didn't, we couldn't, it was tough. We started in Vancouver, Vancouver Island, actually, which in Canada is the probably the most progressive region in Canada when it comes to not only medical assistance and dying and cannabis, but also mushrooms. I mean, there are a few few people in BC that don't know what psilocybin mushrooms are. It's just the place. So we found it pretty easy to recruit our first, you know, 20 healthcare practitioners who we put the exemptions out for. And in a weird way, once, you know, Canadian doctors and therapists and nurses heard that some of their peers are getting access to this and they're reading the research, they're going, well, I want access to this too, right? What's different? What's the difference between me and that doctor? And again, the research is is amazing. It's incredible. It's 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 some of the best research in the world right now for the treatment of, of PTSD and, and many mental. No, absolutely. And yet, when I talk to you know, we get all the time. I talk to doctors in Britain and say, "I want to see RCTs," and I say, "Well, you don't need RCTs. You know, this the effect sizes are so huge, and you know, and why would you want to wait for a company to go into an RCT to allow your I've got to see RCT. And we've kind of been brainwashed. We have this organization called NICE. It was called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. And they're absolutely obsessed with cost effectiveness. And they can only get that from an RCT. And I think it's so primitive that you you can't actually look at other forms of evidence, particularly when people... Patients are looking for something to help them in the, in the most, most terrible extremists. Most of, like most, none of your patients could wait for an RCT in order to get the benefit because they will be dead. So why why wouldn't you at least try when there's, as you say, good non-RCT? Well, in fact, those two trials were RCTs, but but they weren't done by a drug company and they weren't being sold as a as a medicine. They were just they're just out there as a as a demonstration of efficacy. So yeah, again, I think you know maybe that you're your medical profession is a bit more empowered, a bit more um, autonomous than ours. We've, we've kind of lost a lot of the uh, the will that doctors used to have to try to be innovative and, and very patient-centric. You know, we're now, we follow algorithms, and that's the sign of, and I, I think actually that's actually undermining medicine. But sorry about going on about the problems I have. I find it really interesting. And, and David, I, I believe at this last meeting we had with the Drug Science Group, you mentioned that you're working on an essay, right, about uh, psychiatry and adversity to novelty. Like, what the hell's up with that? I don't know. But it is real, right? 
Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons I was delighted to have you come on this podcast, so as I can then I can use this to educate, and there will be quite a few doctors out there who are open-minded and who you know would potentially be reassured that it's not just me who's promoting this, but you guys over there with good evidence. So, how many doctors do you think you've got signed up now, Spencer? So signed up, I'd say we've on our email list again. Like the numbers hardly do it justice because we're we're such a, a bottleneck ourselves. I mean, we're a small nonprofit with very limited funding, but you know we've probably had about two thousand healthcare professionals reach out to us. I've you know we've we've just sent out a letter to their minister of health signed by about two hundred doctors asking for regulations to be put forward. And at present, we've got like I said twenty healthcare or about 19 healthcare practitioners, legal exemptions for psilocybin. But we've got another, I think about 90 or 100 now exemptions waiting on responses. And again, these are all doctors and therapists who have patients who are either asking for exemptions or have exemptions. And they just want access to psilocybin so that they can train with unordinary states of consciousness, learn how to hold space and practice with each other. And again, I mean, here's another interesting thing is I think most people would be shocked as to how many Canadians specifically, and and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but how many Canadian healthcare practitioners have had experience either more recently or back in the 60s with these psychedelics. And so many of the people that we're working with, you know, they don't even need this. Many of them have had experiences in altered states, either from psychedelics back in the 50s and 60s or through, you know, legal therapies like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, or even holotropic breathwork. And, and once they've tried it, I mean, once they've looked through that telescope, it's a lot less about convincing and more about just supporting them with helping their patients. Do you run training courses? And I mean, do you run sessions to help people get experience? Is that something you do? Absolutely. Yeah, we have, I think we've run about eight programs now, all with about 10 to 15 trainers in them. We've happily moved from an online model due to COVID to in-person training and those in-person trainings, you know, intensive skills-based, those have been just fantastic. And, and we've got nothing but, you know, perfect reviews from all the people who are taking them, who I think most of them are a bit biased and just happy to be in person and training again. Well, that's a, that's, getting together after COVID is definitely, definitely an incentive, isn't it? A low bar. Yeah. <laughs> No, but we're happy to be raising that bar and, and working to you know, make this training more available because this is only the first step, right? Right now, the colleges have no position. So the colleges of you know, the, those therapists, nurses, and physicians who essentially tell people what they can and can't do as a, as a healthcare professional, they're not taking any positions right now on psilocybin, and they won't until it's made, made legal. Uh, so we're really trying to set up you know, a community of practice, a standard of care that different healthcare practitioners can all follow so that they know that they're at least to some degree protected or, or doing, you know, treating people with the right clinical protocol, doing it safely because there is still risk. Yeah. So when you say there, the colleges, the professional colleges don't have a position, but they do have a position, which is that they're they're not opposing it, which I think you might find it's proved extremely difficult for us in the UK to get our Royal College of Psychiatrists to, to say that, you know, they just say, well, we can't, you know, generally, we don't encourage anyone to do anything that's breaking the law, which, of course, for us, it would be. For you, it's kind of not because your health minister has given an approval. But there is still the theoretical risk, I suppose, that you could be arrested for purchase or for seeking out. I mean, it's absolutely, you'd absolutely salt, you know, 
certain that you know people aren't at risk of you know going on the internet and kind of buy this they're not going to get done from being dealers or anything well you know we're lucky in canada i like seeing all these you know news articles about different cities across the u.s uh, decriminalizing uh, yeah. psychedelics yeah. as far as my interpretation of the law goes canada decriminalized all drugs about a year and a half ago i think so last last august when they changed the prosecutor's guidelines and they essentially put out a mandate to the justice department not to prosecute people who were in possession of narcotics for personal use or for medical use so i mean david here's here's a truth right now is in in bc our province is following up with that and they've asked for uh, the decriminalization the same section 56 i'm talking about the same exemption from our health minister uh, to decriminalize all opioids and stimulants in the province so that we can get past you know criminally charging people for for what is a mental health issue and similarly we've got stores downtown vancouver and probably in montreal and toronto that are selling psilocybin mushrooms they're called you know i think there's one called zoomers and they're selling them and the police are walking in there and they're going no one's selling cannabis in here right okay carry on they know that if someone was to get prosecuted for the medical use of any of these substances that they would lose in court and if they lose in court it would mean changes for our, our drug laws so it's almost uh, like the government's kind of turning a blind eye right now and they know our, our rights as canadians to access these things medically uh, which is why no one's bringing the courts into this because the courts would probably favor with a with the patient that is excellent and that answered one question that i had which was how do people get access in some places they can just go and buy it over the counter I mean, listen, this is what the, the minister has done this. They've allowed for possession without allowing for supply, right? You cannot legalize possession without legalizing supply. That's why we have cannabis regulations. So, you know, my message to Jean-Yves Duclos and Caroline Bennett is, you know, enough is enough. Thank you very much, you know, for granting these exemptions for patients and healthcare professionals, but we've got to take it one step further. These people deserve safe access through safe supply, right? We've got tons of people growing mushrooms here in Canada and abroad, making synthetics or synthetic psilocybin. There's no reason we can't get that safely to the people who are using it as medicine. No, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's just a reason other than you've got to overcome the a rather outdated law. Exactly. But at present, people can get it. I mean, that's not an issue. You're not finding that's a bottleneck. No, not at all. And, you know, there are models for this, uh, compassion clubs, the patients, we encourage them to speak with each other so that if any are having issues, uh, you know, they can support each other and one exemption holder giving psilocybin to another exemption holder. I don't think that's breaking any rules. Again, uh, it would be up to the courts to interpret it, but that's part of the arbitrariness of these exemptions right now. How much are you allowed to possess? How are you supposed to get it? Can you give it? You know, part of the nice thing about the doctors too having the exemptions is the doctor can, you know, get some psilocybin too and be like, yep, I've tried this, it's safe, and they can get it to their patient. So there was a statute which set the five grams, or there was a some statutory instrument. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, the, the exemption says five grams of psilocybin, and, you know, maybe this will change now if, if Health Canada hears us talking about this. Maybe not, because, again, there are some patients who, such as the ones with cluster headaches. Yeah, they use a lot. Don't they? they probably need about a kilogram of mushrooms. It's, it's not easy to grow them, and they'll, they'll use that kilogram in a year, no problem. So it's interesting. You know, it may or may not be the perfect amount, and maybe Health Canada knows that. 
I mean, you would have a pretty long and um, interesting trip if you took it all at once, but I guess most, certainly most doctors should know better. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's part of the, the nice thing about psilocybin is you probably couldn't even ingest enough to, to put you in any relative. No, that's probably true. You'd probably throw up. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, this is the other interesting thing, and I think I quite like this, the fact that most people who are, when you're in that state looking for palliative help, you know, you're, it's like unlikely that you are, even if the police were to come, they're not likely to do anything. And actually, you're not going to care. You've got more important things to worry about than yeah. the ability of breaching a stupid law, haven't you? So I guess that's quite an interesting sort of front group for, you know, pioneers, really, for your initiative, because they're, they're the ones that actually probably have the greatest need and the, and the least risk. Exactly. I mean, you know, how, how do I, I want to make sure I quote him correctly, but one of the patients uh, we were working with is like saying, I, I don't need the minister, right, to tell me that I can take psilocybin, right? Like, I'm dying here. I'm this is probably a 60-year-old gentleman. Like, I'm going to do it. What I need is for the minister to tell my doctor it's okay to work with me. And so my doc doesn't need to be, you know, afraid of, of getting their license. And quite frankly, this is what I think is beautiful is he realizes I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for the other people who may be afraid, right? I'm advocating for them. And the beautiful thing in healthcare seems to be is there is no difference between advocating for yourself and advocating for others because any systems change that comes out of self-advocacy in a country that's based on equality is going to apply equally to everyone else. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. No, yeah, this is remarkable what you're doing. Are you documenting any of the outcomes or adverse effects? Do you have any sort of systematic data gathering? We are actually, and I think this was, this is actually your group that's been a, a huge help Okay, putting this together for us. Yeah, uh, you know, James Bunn has been been really helpful, and then we've been working with um, Imperials and and McGill. So Kyle Greenway has been really helpful as well in setting up a, a qualitative and soon to be quantitative research program where we're just going to study these patients that are getting access through Section Fifty Six and see, you know, based on their their scales how they're doing before, during, and after treatment. And then what I'm really excited too is to follow up with just asking them, you know, how did this impact your life? How did it change you? Because I can tell you one of the best parts of my job is I get to speak with every single patient who comes through here and every healthcare practitioner yeah. and talk to them about their experience. And like, I just wish, uh, I mean, I wish I could, I wish we had had the research right from the very beginning, because unfortunately that's all anecdotal evidence, right? What we need is, is to put that in, in hard numbers and in a way that, uh, you know, politicians and bureaucrats and other physicians and professionals can look at it and make some sense out of it because almost every single story has been very beautiful, amazing transformations in these people's lives. And I'm just excited to get that started and, and start sharing it with the world. Yeah, well, you must. You know, it's, it must be 10 years ago now. I was uh, in my psychopharm clinic deep in the bowels of the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where I used to, to run it. I was treating a guy who had, I was treating him for mostly ADHD, in fact, but he had a terrible limp. And he read in the newspapers how we had done the first imaging, that first imaging study with psilocybin. And the next time he came into my clinic, he said, you know, Doc, I'm going to have to, I've got to tell you this because I've never told really anyone this before, but this terrible limp I've got. And I said, yeah. I said well, what is it about? And he said, you know, he said, I had a really bad bicycle accident when I was you know, about 12 and I bust my ankle so badly it's never healed you know properly healed and he said I was in chronic pain for years I was in chronic pain and then he said on my 18th birthday I went to a party and someone gave me some acid and the pain went 
And in fact, I've got the, I've got his narrative. He, I asked him to write the narrative out, which, and that was when I began to get interested in that the idea that you could actually use psychedelics for pain, you know, other than what I'd known about previously with cluster headaches. And I just thought, wow, you know, his life was transformed by that experience. And why would you not want other people in chronic pain, particularly neuropathic pain, to have a similar access? So, as you probably know, we are setting up to do a trial now with psilocybin in chronic pain. Well, that's incredible. I mean. This is the interesting thing about treating people with a terminal diagnosis is that's one of the diagnoses they have. It's one of the issues that they may be experiencing. So that person I told you about who we'd gotten the exemption in about 24 hours with the extreme pain, I mean, that pain was due to a, a tumor and it was hurting their leg, but their diagnosis was terminal, right? They weren't using the psilocybin necessarily, or at least the exemption wasn't for, for chronic pain. It was for life distress, but nonetheless, it helped them fully recover from from their pain. I mean, they, they pretty much got off of all their pain medication and said, you know, I, I don't want to live like that anymore. So whether or not the pain went away or whether or not it was just a, a restructuring of, of what pain is and, and what's tolerable, right, it worked. It doesn't matter as long as it's exactly. That's right. What's the method of action? We don't know. It doesn't matter. It works, right? And and that is luckily, you know, that's a mantra in, in palliative care these days is, is people care less about why it works and just that it does. And it's, it's beautiful. That's where healthcare, you know, should be based on is, is compassion and pragmacy. Because when things like that work, that's when we get doctors going, well, I don't care. I just know I've got another patient who might need it for their pain. And so we've, we've started to, I know we started this conversation and it's mostly been focused on palliative patients. But in Canada, we've actually got a a bit of a change happening with our medical assistance in dying laws, uh, which is going to remove a clause that says that death has to be foreseeable for a number of reasons relating to people's diagnoses, uh, such as, you know, Alzheimer's, where you may want to choose um, your medical death before it becomes impossible to choose. So that's changing. And because of that, there are now patients with cluster headaches in chronic pain who may soon, or I think already, are eligible to get medical assistance in dying. And in many cases, they could get that in as little as three days. These same people have been waiting what? over. Yep. I, okay. Don't quote me on that one. No, right. okay. <laughs> don't quote me on that. I know that made medical assistance in dying in this country, this is a fact, can be accessible in as little as three days for certain patients. And as we make it more accessible for patients whom death is not reasonably foreseeable, this may open it up to people who are, you know, outside of our original classification of terminal, at least what we were, what us and the government have, have de designated as terminal. So this may apply to, you know, patients with cluster headaches. It may apply to uh, patients with, not, with other physiological and, and mental disorders. And so there are people like this who have been waiting 250 days for a response from our health minister. And we've been lobbying, you know, hard, and it's been difficult during the election. But nonetheless, those same people who are experiencing chronic pain, other chronic health, mental issues, they should have access to psilocybin. You know, who is, who is the minister to say what dictates or what, what a reasonable application of psilocybin is and isn't. That should be in the power of, in the hands of the doctors. So to date, we've helped about seven patients who are non-terminal, who have, are in remission from their cancer diagnosis. And we've got many other patients asking for support because this is coming from the doctors as a as a patient-centered and healthcare practitioner-centered organization we're listening to them and they're saying i want psilocybin for my chronic pain i want psilocybin for my ptsd 
I want psilocybin for my addiction, right? I don't want to wait until I'm about to die to get access to this. I, I need it now. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, I certainly, absolutely on core uh, what you've just said there. I mean, I just for you might be interested to know that um, the drug science, we do have a, a senior barrister uh, called Rudy Fortson, and, you know, he's been thinking about how we could try to break the ORM pass in the UK where we can't do anything without there being some kind of controlled trial and some kind of registration of a, of a drug like that. And he's been thinking about a sort of similar model to what you have, I think, which is that basically giving doctors the autonomy so that the doctors could take the responsibility in a sense for, but it would be the doctor's responsibility to to hold and to dispense the psilocybin under their medical license, rather than having a you know having to wait for a company to come along and sell it to them. So I think we might well be getting back to you to to talk about your medical experiences because if we have a good body of doctors over in Canada who can share with our administrators and our, our you know health department their confidence and and their, the value of what they've been doing, that that could be quite reassuring to. Uh, to the UK authorities. So I I may well come back to you on that in the the not too distant future. Well, I would love that. I I think there's so much to be done in collaborating with other other countries. I know we've got a similar amount of interest from, and and you've been working with Australia, MindNet Australia. There's some groups in New Zealand that we're working with now who are saying essentially we've got the same thing, medical cannabis and medical assistance and death. Why not psilocybin now? And I also similarly wonder if there's a route here to work with like the World Health Organization and UN to assert, you know, some form of, of human right uh, to these medicines, right? These things that, that, you know, let's just say may or may not have been used in a religious or spiritual context for the last couple thousand years, you know, only now in this brief blip in time have we made them illegal and inaccessible. And that's, that doesn't seem to be working. No, well, I'm absolutely with you there. I think it is timely to approach the WHO. I mean, the problem, like, but I can tell you, having spent quite a few years trying to get them to revise their views on medical cannabis, it won't be easy. You know, they needed quite a lot of pushing. I think we need to have an international strategy. Certainly, it would be very helpful if a country, rather than a charity like mine, came out in favour. They would have to. A country, Canada could put on the agenda of the WHO, the drug dependency, or the, you know, the, the drug, whatever it's called, I've forgotten now, the, the section. They have the expert committee on drug harms every year in December. Canada could put on the agenda for that next meeting, and you may even have a Canadian member, a request to have a formal appraisal of psilocybin as a medicine. And there's a good chance that that would be approved. But then the WHO said they couldn't afford to do it. And that, but I think if if we were all smart, we could actually offer to do it for them, which is actually what we did in the end for medical cannabis. And we our report effectively provoked them into action. And then you know they they suddenly found the money to to do it. I think, but we could even if they wouldn't, we could do it together. And I think that it would be very compelling. And and. And then, because that lays down a marker, and then if they don't want to accept it, they're going to have to. <laughs> either way, they've got to do a report. They either accept our report or they have to do their own because they can't just let it sitting there and, and pretend it doesn't exist. So I think, yeah, I think we're getting close to the time. But again, if a country would do it, if Canada would do it, lead it, that would be immensely, immensely helpful. And we would certainly work with you. You know, we'd put you know, a lot of our uh, expertise in, in terms of writing these reports 
behind you to do that. We'd love to partner you on that too. Maybe your health minister would like to um, have an international presence. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, part of the letter that we sent to our Minister of Health, which can be found on our website, you know, it, it outlines the regulations we've put together as an organization, which model our medical cannabis regulations. They're very similar. And it's exactly as you're talking about. It's a doctor's gatekeeper system where that doctor is the one deciding who gets psilocybin, not, you know, our top health pod politician. And, and in the letter, we essentially said, look what happened with cannabis, right? We became, you know, global leaders leading compassionate and progressive healthcare. And once again, we have the ability to take the world stage here and be leaders in access to psilocybin based on compassion, but also based on growing research and evidence. I mean, we've got more than enough Canadian patients, right, constituents of our health minister and the politicians using it and experiencing phenomenal results, right? If that's happening, you know, what happened to duty? What happened to responsibility? I feel like there's a responsibility to oh, say that this, that this needs appraisal, right? That we've got to change this because uh, it's not working for us, right? Well, you know what? You've just made me, I mean, you know the story about the, about cannabis. I don't know if you do, but when we we uh, we tried to persuade them to to say that medical cannabis was a medicine, we were actually in Geneva and we were trying to find the original 1934 report, which said it wasn't a medicine which they hadn't revised in 80 odd years. And we said, we, we would like to see this report because we'd like to know what is the intellectual basis on which you keep saying it's not a medicine. And they said, well, we can't show you it. We said, why not? Because we've lost it. So we have 80 years of pursuing a policy based on a report which was made before even the WHO existed under the League of Nations, a report they can't find. I mean, I, just, I mean, the absurdity and the immorality of it now I don't know. I don't know whether there was any systematic assessment of the value of psilocybin when it when it was banned. I mean, it. I, was, I suspect there probably wasn't. I suspect it was just sucked along with the the hysteria about LSD. That would be quite an interesting uh, thing to explore, wouldn't it? Really? Well, there is. There's like a saying, isn't there? Like, a lack of evidence is not proof of you know of anything, right? So. It is, it is absurd. I mean, that's an amazing story that, that they couldn't even find it. And, you know, to this day, I would love to know why psilocybin was put in this, you know, category of harmful and abusive and, and addictive. I, mean, I think I know someone that could do that. One of my colleagues, I think I might email him after this conversation. I, know, I think I know someone that would be, this was the person that dug out the, you can't see the cannabis one because it doesn't exist. I'll ask him, I'll ask him. That's a, it's a really. This is we should do that. That's a, it'd be fascinating to know just what the literature is there. But I wanted to ask you something else about Canada because I was a little bit apprehensive about the recent election, and I was worried that if the Conservatives came back in, would they continue with this Liberal policy? Do you think was that a worry to you? Well, that's an interesting. You know, that's interesting. I, we've spoken with a couple of Conservative MPs in the past um, who have actually agreed with us that psilocybin for at least palliative care. I think they were a little more uneasy when we spoke about the expansion into, you know, other uh, mental health disorders, but for palliative care, right? I think their, their moral compass was, was at least pointing the right way that if someone has access to medical assistance in dying, they should have access to a mushroom, no doubt. So that was really reassuring and good to hear again, right? That age old, just kind of basic morality 
that if someone has the right to die, they should have the right to try just about anything. The right to die gives you the right to try. I like that. That's your quote. Yeah. Bruce Tobin coined that one. And yeah, it is true. I still to this day have not met a single person and still ask, and we'll put it out there. If you disagree, email me. <laughs> I've never met anyone who disagrees with that, including a lot of these conservative MPs. And quite frankly, we've, we've had a strategy from the very beginning and we still have it now. Uh, we are actually in the courts right now fighting our, our current minister of health trying to get these exemptions that have been waiting 250 days, get a response to them. And we're going to assert that the minister not only has the obligation to respond to these, but also has the duty to approve them. So that'll be moving forward. And, and I doubt that our, our liberal politicians will, will want this to go to the courts. I assume that we'll push them and they'll just make the decision. But let's just say a conservative government was put into power. Again, those courts, doesn't matter whether the government's liberal, yep. conservative, NDP, the courts know our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The same Charter Rights, Section 7, which this isn't too boring, but Section 7 gives all Canadians the right to life, liberty, and security of persons. And if psilocybin is, you know, for you, uh, having access somehow helps you in, in your quest for life, liberty, and security of persons, which cannabis did and which medical assistance in dying did, then I'm sure the courts would also agree that psilocybin fits the same bill and that Canadians have the same right to that. So the courts, you know, they're unbiased. They support patients and healthcare practitioners. And either with our liberal government or conservative government, obviously we'd rather work with the government because courts just make a slow mess of everything. It's far more effective to work with the politicians and, you know, set good good policies. So Spencer, are you a lawyer then? Or how did you get into this in the first place? Oh, no, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. We've got some amazing lawyers, though, that do work with us. And, and there were folks that have been working with us since 2000 or with Bruce since 2017, folks like Paul Lewin, Jack Lloyd, and, and David Wood. I mean, these folks are amazing. You know, they're, they're the heroes of cannabis and they've been fighting this and, you know, practicing this type of law for the last 20 years since cannabis was, was first made legal. And, and I'm just fascinated more personally, you know, with the human rights side of all of this which I think equally, I think you and I would, would see very eye to eye on this, just the absolute absurdity of not allowing people access to an effective medicine, um, just on the basis of human rights. Well, I've said many, many times in talks and in writings that the banning of psychedelics was the worst censorship of research <laughs> in the history of the world. And uh, it's certainly done a huge amount of damage to millions and millions of patients who could have benefited. So that. Nixon legacy, that UN legacy of the 1971 conventions, are absolutely appalling. And it is time to rectify it. So, well, I'm so glad Canada is moving in the right direction. I suspect Britain will be lagging behind, as always. But you inspire us, Spencer, and uh, keep up the, very much say, keep up the great work and keep in touch. And let's see if we can take on the WHO in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That would be an honor. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. I really appreciate that. <laughs>